The little car. Little car. The little car company. Ben Headley. Hello. You'd have to be a lunatic to start a car company. You founded multiple companies. You, you bit of a serial entrepreneur. So what, how did that come aware to you? I had a choice. The little car company was the first one that actually went, okay, there is real opportunity here. If I screw up, potentially other people lose their, lose their jobs. And I feel that responsibility on my shoulders. Um, that's the failure that scares me. We'll be standing outside our building with pitchforks and uh, demanding my head on a stake. Make sure if somebody, if you want something to happen, make sure that the person who's doing it, their incentives are aligned with you. I'm not the most competitive person, but I mm. just, I do enjoy it. Hey, I wanted to ask a massive favour of you. 80% of you who listen to the podcast regularly don't follow it. If I could ask you just to hit follow wherever you listen, I would really appreciate it. It's an excellent way for us to get bigger and better guests and the ability to grow the community beyond anything we could imagine. It also helps the podcast grow more than you could ever know. So thank you. This podcast is lucky enough to be sponsored by iliketorace.com, a brand new social network all about motorsport. And unlike other certain social medias, it's not toxic and it is just full of people that love motorsport and competition. I mean, I'm competitive by nature to the point where I've got a bit too aggressive in certain ways. I mean, just to, just to think of the place I can now go to discuss McLaren and to discuss the ongoing drivers and who's going next. I was gutted when Daniel left, but I can't wait to see how they progress and get other people's opinions on I Like to Race. I'll be getting there, getting involved. So if you like me and you love competition and you love motorsport, I like to race.com. And if you want more information, look to the show notes below. Now, back to the episode. Ben, thank you for your time and, and welcome to the podcast. How are you? Very good, thanks, Harry. Very good. Brilliant. Um, so, like, I like to understand sort of from the base, ground up, your your journey and your early influences. I think it's a good idea and a good background to who you are. So what would you say were the things that defined you and your, your childhood growing up? From a petrohead angle, so my, my folks both worked when I was a kid. Uh, they worked mm. for the NHS as dentists and I finished school early and they weren't ready yet. So I'd go and sit in the waiting room, keep myself amused. And they had, I think they had three magazines there. They had Private, Light, uh, Private Eye, they had Country Life and they had Auto Car. Now, I didn't understand Private Eye because I was like six, six years old, seven years old. And uh, Country Life was boring as hell. Mm. So I kind of just read Auto Car as a kid. And it sort of, yeah, it, it sort of ingrained itself in me. Um, and then there was this, my, my godfather gave me a little green 911 sort of diecast model when I was about five. So I was immediately obsessed with 911s for my entire life as a result of that little toy. And I think I also had a, um, my old man had a, had a sort of a Saab 99 in, in sort of bright yellow. And I had a matching little uh, pedal car as well when I was a kid. And it's all these, I look back at all these influences, and I think they just made me a petrol head um as a as a young so i used to go into my dad's workshop and take engines apart um while he was sort of building stuff and um i sort of one day i should probably find out how to put them back together again because he was getting a bit pissed off so uh i ended up studying engineering that was the i guess that was the impetus with a with a dream to be a car designer but sadly i can't draw well enough yeah, I mean, so what was it like? I guess going at school was 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 it was your passions talked about? Was were you encouraged? I mean, what was that like for you? The, the whole education journey. Yeah, I was I was lucky. I was I seemed to be pretty good at exams, um, so I was pretty lucky there. I kind of I love maths and physics. Because um, I looking back, no, I was car obsessed because my physics A level project, I basically built a speed camera 
uh, using uh, 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 audio resonance to try and sort of measure this thing going down. And I think it was mainly because I wanted to figure out how to dodge speed, speed track cameras myself. Um, but yeah, I was lucky. And I, I actually, I, I enjoyed school. I did a lot of sports. I made good friends. I, yeah, I really enjoyed it. And I, I'd be there at lunchtimes in the library reading also Carl, um, which they used to subscribe to. Um, and when it came to sort of deciding what I wanted to do in my career, I kind of wanted to be a boat designer as well, but again, mm. still can't draw. So I thought I'd, I'd try me in and uh, took a took a gap year actually beforehand. Um, I had got a place at uni, uh, but I took a gap year beforehand, and there was a there was a there was a car angle to that as well. So I, I went out and worked in the kitchen in Valdezere washing dishes, yeah. and uh, taught myself how to ski. I had a week ski lessons at that point. And I taught myself, and then um, I got all right. I started competing on snowboard, won a couple of competitions, and you know, my dream had always been to be a, in the British ski team, be a racer. And I remember, and there was a chance, there was like a window. And I was a bit old to start, but I was I was all right. Yeah. And I, I remember my mum and dad driving me to uni on the first day. And there's this, there was this like burgundy red Porsche 911 Turbo, 993 Turbo, beautiful thing, just parked up in the, in the car park. And, and mum, she just turned to me and said, if you don't do this degree, you're never going to be able to afford one of those. And yeah. I think that was the point where my skiing career and and uh, and engineering career sort of diver- diverged, and I took the academic path in the end. Yeah, I mean, I've always I've always looked at cars as a as a pivot point in my life. Like, if there's anything I'm thinking about or anything that I have an idea for, if I'm thinking about it and a car goes past, I immediately just I, I just it take it as a sign, and it's weird. Like, you, you, your brain picks up on these things, I guess, and they notice yeah. them more because of the cars that we, we've like we we fall in love with. Yeah. It's weird that these, these hunks of metal can be quite defining points in your life when all they are is a reason to get to from A to B, essentially. But there's so much more to it. There's a passion. There's a, you know, uh, spend my years. I couldn't afford it. I could, <laughs> couldn't have figured out. I couldn't afford AD insurance on a car when I was a uni mm. or, the, um, or a, a decent car. But I spotted a little loophole in that you could get classic car insurance um, because basically most classic cars were driven by... Um, old duffers who yeah. had been driving for 30 years and just definitely wouldn't have a crash. And so I figured out that I could, um, ins- I could buy an old MGB Roadster, um, which I bought for 1700 quid, hadn't driven for seven years yeah. and spent a summer making it work again. Uh, I, I kindly described the color as diarrhea beige <laughs> and, uh, and I could insure it fully comp for 160 quid a year. Wow. Um, and so that was my, those are my wheels. And, uh, my, my first car and it was so unreliable that i used to have to have a toolkit in the uh, in the back just the whole boot was always just full of tools so that i could fix stuff when it broke down inevitably every uh, every five miles or so i can't say i did a brilliant job of restoring it or making it work again yeah so i mean so what happened with your with your career then because if if now obviously you've, you've, you've founded multiple companies you you've been a bit of like a bit of a serial entrepreneur so what where did it go from university going, right, I'm going to spend my time learning a vocation or learning a, learning a skill to going, actually, I can work for myself. I can I can do pick an idea and, and make it work. How did that sort of become aware to you? Yeah, so it was a weird one. So I, I kind of, um, I had a choice. I, I graduated from uni, did a couple of engineering degrees, and I had a choice. I could either basically go up to Coventry and work, you know, wear a lab coat and work, uh, do an apprenticeship and stuff in a, 
car company mm. or all my mates were moving out to London <clears throat> and I got offered a reasonably well-paid job in a management consultancy I basically took the reasonably well-paid job in a management consultancy thinking it would tell me give me the skills to be an entrepreneur it was it was hugely useful um and it, it gave me stuff I, I learned the hard way I mean 16 hour days seven days a week for months yeah. on end it was it was brutal when I look back on it um but it gave me sort of basics like um presentations business negotiations spreadsheets all that kind of stuff that I could then build on and I, I ended up as a sort of consultant generally for companies um doing for example I was advising Samsung on the future of television um flying out to Korea to sort of go in these crazy buildings these crazy people and talk about these crazy concepts um but I always had that entrepreneurial bent so I'd pay the bills by doing a day job you know consultancy something yeah. like that and then I'd you know, when, when I have an idea, I'd sort of try and make it happen alongside what they call the sort of uh, nine to five and five to nine. Uh, although that's optimistic on the hours. Um, <laughs> and yeah, and I, it was, I've got a list of sort of business ideas. They come to me as I sort of spot the problem that needs solving. And I've got still about 40 of them on my list, which I'll get around to one day. Um, and yeah, and it's, it's, been a, it's been a good journey. It's been hard um, because it's, you have your day job to pay the bills and then you know the uh, you, you do the entrepreneurial stuff on the side but the little car company was the first one that actually went okay there is real opportunity here um, mm. i'm gonna have to get it for i was forced to get investment to get it off the ground because it's too you just can't do it on your own like i did with the others they're all organic and um and that and that also forced me to take on a lot more responsibility because you've got somebody else's money yeah. that you're spending and uh and in my case, it was friends of the family who invested and you need to be responsible and you need to kind of give it your all. So yeah, it was, it was, it was good, but the little car company, the other ones have done okay. And I've got friends or hmm. running them or, or sort of sold them. But um, yeah, little car company is the first one that's gone absolutely stellar. Yeah. I, I'd love to talk about that in a minute, but sort of what sort of, um, what gave you the, gave you the skills, not gave you the skills, but I guess what gave you, the resolve and the resilience to be able to like just just like skiing's not an easy thing to pick up and starting companies not an easy thing to do. So was this something that I guess do you think your parents had an influence early on or was it just something that you knew that it was going to be a part of your life? I think I think there's a certain bits. I was very lucky because you need certain bits in your sort of psyche to to make it happen. Um uh, you need to be stubborn as hell. Um, because you will literally knock on a thousand doors before one opens, be that up for investment, for a contract, for whatever. And it's the same with any business. You just, you can't give up after 10 doors. You can't give up to a hundred. You've just got to keep going and keep going and keep going and just not give up. So stubbornness helps. I, I'm lucky, and it's strange to say it, um, I was diagnosed as dyslexic very late on. So I was in my 20s. So I'd done my degrees and then he said, oh yeah, by the way, you're dyslexic. But it does give you a sort of lateral thinking thing. So writing documents takes me twice as long. Uh, I have to be very careful spell checking emails. Um, but on the flip side, it gives you a sort of lateral thinking angle, which is useful sort of skill to have. Um, and I think as well, you've got to be a bit of a risk taker. So, you know, my I've always loved speed and risk and, you know, danger. So I, you know, when I was at uni, I used to compete on a snowboard a bit. And wherever, and rather than, you know, everyone else is wearing helmets and I'll be there on the big air doing backflips without a helmet, just wearing my rugby gum shield. Um, you know, I got skydiving license in my twenties just because I love the thrill. 
Um, and then I, you know, took up speed skiing sort of later in life and got into the old British ski team. Um, and that was, yeah, that's a different level of risk. But you need to be, everyone has different physical risk I'm absolutely fine with. I, you know, I get really nervous when it's about um, financial risk, particularly other people's financial risk. You know, if I went bust and had to sort of live on the street, that would be bad. But what I don't want to do is lose somebody else's money. And that that's a huge responsibility. But you've got to be you've got to be comfortable with the risk of looking silly, following an idea that isn't going to work, you know, making mistakes, all this kind of stuff, because you'll do it and you can't be proud about it. Um, it's just it's it's for me, it's those three things. I think stubbornness, the dyslexia really helps the natural thinking and then the being prepared to take a risk. Yeah, so it's, it's, I guess I guess failure is not a thing you're you're afraid of. Uh, no, we all screw up. You know, we all we all kind of make mistakes. Um, if I look at the little car company, this thing that I guess scares me most, I just don't want to let down my team. You know. Yeah. Um, and it, I think one of the things we do in business is we give everybody a shares in the business when they join, okay. so they feel like it's it's our company, not my company, um, and it's both that and it's also you know people's jobs you've got online so if if somebody sort of uh, in the warehouse screws up then we can't build a car and that's annoying but it's okay if i screw up potentially other people lose their, lose their jobs and i feel that responsibility on my shoulders um because they're you know colleagues and friends and uh, yeah. shareholders in the business so yeah that's that that that's the failure that scares me okay no, it's, I guess it is. It's responsibility is a scary thing, like anything. I mean, like I've, I'm, res- I'm responsible for pretty much nothing at this at this age, and it's, it, I guess it's, it's, it's something that I'm, I'm looking, I'm not looking forward to, but I am looking forward to it. Is, is the not a burden of responsibility, but having, having people rely on me is, is something that I guess, I, have, I don't have a lot of, but I would like to experience that. Yeah, it's, a, it's a poison chalice. It's, it's, it's made the grass is always greener for everyone, right? So you, you mm. kind of look at it now and you kind of go, oh God, I'd, you know, I'd love to be running tesla or or taking that thing but but then you know the 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 responsibility comes with it it's the kind of stuff that keeps you up at night and yeah. um yeah the, the the failures just get bigger and the, the stakes get bigger the the successes are bigger but also the screw-ups can have so much more impact um so it's and it, it comes i think it's bizarre i always i still in my head i'm still 21 with no you know i'm, I'm kind of that aspirational looking and wouldn't it be great if and suddenly, you know, wouldn't it be great if I ran my own car company? And I'm now suddenly at that position where I'm running my own yeah. car company. I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> I can't, you know, if I swear on this interview or or, or said something or, you know, let let down or, or breach contract by telling you who our next partner is or yeah. all that stuff is quite, it's quite nerve wracking. Um, but it's good. It, it, you know, any people who don't want to have responsibility, uh, I mean, Think they're few and far between but they're probably mostly not really adding much value to society no i mean uh, yeah fair enough and so the between that lateral thinking and the idea for this company so how did the little car company come into existence so i i one of my startups i spotted this guy in vietnam was making this is back in it's about probably about 14 years ago i suppose he was making these beautiful little cars on go basic go-kart chassis yeah in vietnam he's a british guy and um, he just got a bit of press. And I thought, wow, those look pretty cool. And I emailed him and said, look, have you got the British distributor to sell these things? I thought there might be a market. And they were half scale and they were very pretty. Um, yeah. And he said, no, no. So at the time I was trying to buy a flat 
and I spend my flat deposit. Thank you for listening so far. And before we get back to hearing more from our guests, a huge thank you to those who support the podcast by listening and sharing it among friends and enthusiasts alike. Suppose you could help by becoming a patron. By becoming a patron, you can access live events and video podcasts. These podcasts will always be and continue to be free forever. But like anyone doing something out of passion, I want to improve. Better guests, audio and book production. If you're willing to give a small monthly amount and invest in my mission to inspire, inform and entertain by getting better equipment and giving me more time to invest back in the podcast, I would be forever grateful for anything you can provide. If you're currently on your journey to explore your passion for cars and need help introducing yourself to people in the industry, patrons will also be having a one-to-one with me to help advise and see if the network I have built during this podcast can help you achieve your goals. I will leave further information in the show notes below if you want to know more about how you can help. So I couldn't buy a flat on, um, I bought all his stock he had, uh, I think six cars at the time. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and I kind of started this company with selling the, importing these cars in the UK. And they were unofficial, there was not sanctioned. Um, I'll be honest, the quality was pretty terrible. Yeah. Um, And I got to a stage where I had a guy running it for me, but it was never going great guns because they just, they were just good looking go-karts really. Okay. Um, Brilliantly designed, and I will not say. I think the guy behind the engineer is superb. He's so good, but um, yeah, they just weren't. They weren't getting the traction. So we'd spoken to a couple of OEMs about doing our own, um, but we realised that the 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 capex to develop a you know a new full size car model is a billion pounds basically now. So okay. when you know when Alpha do a new model or, or Ford or whatever, it's, it's at least a billion pounds more of this ev um for us it's it we figured out it would cost one to two million pounds to develop which is just okay. more money than we had or could get hold of and that's for us to market because nobody had ever done a sort of sanctions scaled down car so we never moved it forward and i decided eventually i was just going to close this down it wasn't really going that well it was okay it washed its face but it was just it wasn't going anywhere great so just closing it down two weeks before I closed it down, I got an email from Bugatti and they said, Hey, we, we're looking, we want to do something for the 110th birthday of the business. Um, you know, we want to remake the Bugatti baby from the 1920s. Yeah. And I was like, what's the Bugatti baby? Um, and I, I'd never seen, I'd, I'd sort of, I'd seen models that looked like a small Bugatti before. I didn't realize there was actually a sanction of Bugatti baby. And yeah. so I did a bit of research. I was like, Holy these things are if you can get hold of one, one of the vintage 1920 ones, they're 100 grand. Yeah, I was like, okay, there's both there's a precedent here, and there's a kind of um, you know, uh, the the arguably the highest value car brand in the world want to do this, and they've asked me to help out. I was like, right, we can do this. So, put together a pitch and proposal, um, and we signed the deal 22 days before Geneva Motor Show, okay. Um, and uh, yeah, so I closed down the original business. I wanted to start afresh. I wanted to kind of just do properly sanctioned cars only. And I wanted to do incredible detail. So we just closed down the business, started again. And yeah, we had 22 days before the GMO started. And Bugatti, I said to Bugatti, oh, we'll do a nice, like some cut purse specs to give an idea of the size. We'll bottom light it blue and it'll look lovely. And like, yeah. no, 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 we want a car. I was like, it's 22 days away. And they were like, yeah, we want a car. So we managed to design the sort of shell of a car. Um, we 3D printed it in 22 okay. days. 
And the night before the CEO was supposed to sign it off at um, seven o'clock in the morning, I was there at 3 a.m. My The guy who was supposed to build the car never turned up. <laughs> oh, well, so okay. I'm there with this kind of like, with a, a CAD model that I'd never seen before, trying to remember how to operate CAD. I had a pen knife and I had a glue gun. And I'm there trying to put together this 35 brands worth of 3D printed plastic. That if I broke any of it, game over. Because yeah. we only had one bit of everything. And it had no labels on what was what. And lots of it was just clear person laying the car on. I was like, oh, longest night of my life. But um, pulled it together and got it got it there. And then the next day, Geneva Motor Show opened. Press release went out. And yeah, we were in business. That sounds that sounds amazing because it's like, always like you you're back in your ga- your garage with your dad building like taking engines apart and you've suddenly got all this all these parts in front of you, and it's weird how it, how life comes full circle because you're putting together now a full car where it used to be playing with engine parts. It's just it is weird, isn't it? How how life does that? Yeah, it was strange. It was it was it, it's one of those things. It's like if you're put in a difficult situation, you you look you can always deal with it. You can always get through it. And it was one of those times. It was super super high stress um i'd never want to have to go through it again but it's added a lot of value for example i'm telling you the story now and it it's it's it was a it was a it was a very momentous moment in the business and one of those things we'll always remember yeah um you know i look at some of the other stuff we've done and i've gone well that was definitely one of the hardest times um to get the business off the ground but yeah it, it steals you up. It makes you. It makes you tougher. It makes you more stubborn. It makes you more resilient. It's a. It was a pain, but it was worth doing. Yeah, because I, I, I can imagine you. I mean, did, did you get quite angry at this guy that never showed up? I mean, what, what was what was that about? No, it was. It was kind of. It, it wasn't his fault. He he helped us design the car, but he had another client booked in to help out, and he's when he arrived, he was just delayed arriving. So he was like, "Oh, really sorry, got to go." Um, <laughs> And the other problem we had was that the Bugatti uh, stand was still being built. They were late. And so the stand builders were way behind time. So oh, when okay. I'm building it, I'm surrounded by these workmen with hats on, moving bits of timber. And I've got this priceless sort of thing and I'm trying to put my arms around it so that they don't kick it. And um, no, and there was no, there's no point getting angry about stuff. You just JFDI, you just get on with it um, and uh, get it done. Yeah. Uh, and I tell you what, I slept well that night. I mean, for the three hours sleep I got, that I did sleep well that night. <laughs> but that's it. So, I mean, speaking about problems, um, what is the problem, I guess, that the little car company aims to solve? Because I know it can seem like it's success, it's pointless, but what is, I guess, for you and your clients, what is the problem that you're solving for them? Yeah, it's a good question, Steve, because we, we are evolving as we go. We're sort mm. of learning. So the business model is, is changing as we, uh, through again. I think we'll talk about that. But... I think we set out to do three things with a little car company, with the, what we call the icons, the sort of scaled down classic cars. So the Bugatti uh, Baby 2, the Aston Martin DB5 Junior, and the Ferrari 250 Destros J. So those are the icons. And what, what we're trying to do is we're trying to bring these beautiful cars from the past to a new audience. Um, if you want to get hold of a, one of the 19 250 Test that were made, you're going to need the thick end of $50 million to do it. That's quite hard to experience, and it, they just get locked away in museums. Because what we do is we go super accurate. We don't we don't make toys. I think we, we get quite sensitive about that because I thought about that. I, I thought, well, let's just design, let's get these things made in China, mass market, just have it 
you know, go-kart chassis underneath, slap a Bugatti badge on, and I'll disappear off to the Maldives with a nice suitcase full of money. And often I wish I'd done that. I really do. But we, because we took an entire Type 35, took it to pieces, scaled down all the parts by 25%, and then obviously took out that straight A and put in an electric powertrain. But because it's authentic, the, the Type 35, uh, the Bugatti baby handles like an original Type 35. And you've got that authenticity that you wouldn't otherwise have. Yeah. The Ferrari 250 Testarossa, we went into Ferrari's museum, uh, Marinello, it's a classiche. We scanned the paper drawings with the original chassis from the 1950s. And we recreate chassis spars exactly as they were in the 1950s. The body on the Ferrari is made the same techniques. The steering wheel is made by Nardi like it was in the 1950s. Yeah. We, we sort of go to this detail. So what we're trying to create are little cars. And that means because they're so close in authenticity, you can get the experience of driving a 250 Tesserossa without having $50 million um, and try to bring those beautiful cars. To the, and we, we want people to razz around in them. We know a lot of our cars go into collections and people yeah. just sort of sit on them to, for the appreciated price. But actually, what we really enjoy is just watching people skid around the track and um, <laughs> you know, have fun with them. And, you know, they get crashed occasionally. Um, we had someone from a, um, someone from a uh, well-known manufacturer who I won't mention um, thought he had his foot on the accelerator, on the brake, he had on the accelerators. <laughs> we were doing the demo and we showed what reverse looked like. He reversed it into the back, into our building by accident. Oh, no. But uh, no, we, we don't want if they get scratched. And it's, um, yeah, the, so we want to bring these cars to the past. We want to show that EVs can be fun because a lot of petrol heads, especially classic car petrol heads, are against EVs. Whereas I think it's, we've got to embrace it. And I think there is a way to interpret the classic cars with EVs. We're not taking it, we're not making a full size Ferrari 250 and then sticking an electric powertrain in it because people will be standing outside our building with pitchforks and uh, demanding my head on a stake. Um, but what we are doing is reinterpreting. We're having a bit of fun with, you know, with, we're doing things like we're putting a Manatino on the yeah. Ferrari, which is a, obviously a 1990s, 2000s edition. We've got a speaky from the Chiron on the Bugatti. We're having a bit of fun as well, you know, having a, not doing a perfect replica. We're just adding a few little details as well. So same handling, but also a bit of fun. The third thing we're trying to do is also, you know, I don't know where you learn to drive, but I you know, actually grew up in Suffolk, so I learned to drive a tractor before I could drive a car. But I kind of, um, I, I, we try to get that experience, the parent and child, grandparents and child, loving cars together and bonding over cars. And, and yeah. you know, that it feels to me that younger generations have sort of lost that to a certain extent they are um you know more interested in tech and tiktok and whatever uh, you know celebrities doing and not you know whereas i had pictures of cars and walls maybe i'm just sounding old i think i'm just sounding old when I say you know how old because i mean there's there is <laughs> maybe i'm maybe i'm getting old too but how did you learn to drive in? where was your how, how did you get into cars so i i got into cars um i think that's a good question i used to go kart drive i raced go karts as, as a kid and that was like, that was the, my, that was my life. Like it was, that was, that was the thing I wanted to do. Um, I always wanted to become a racing driver, but suddenly realized it cost a lot of money. And I guess the situation I was in, my parents couldn't afford it. Therefore it just wasn't an option. So I got into cars through that. And then I've, I used to collect like little, several of diecast cars. I've got, I've got a box in my cupboard of a thousand and one Hot Wheels. And I had all the sets and I used to, I used to do draw, draw them. Um, little maps out I used to play 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 cars as a kid so that was that's how I got into cars and yeah it's it's strange isn't it that that now if you look at it you'll be giving a chance for I guess 
if when I, when I, when I have kids, if I have kids, I guess I want that relationship with my kids. I want to bond over this thing that my relationship with Carl has always been my imagination. And so that's, yeah. that's brilliant because it, it, you, the stuff you're doing with little Khan company gives on mass people, I guess, a chance to experience the cars that they would have never seen can afford or will ever drive. That's it. I, the first Ferrari I ever drove, and it still is the only Ferrari I ever drove, is one of ours, which is quite mm. fun. Um, and and getting that opportunity. And with the number of people, we basically have an open house with cars. People are, you know, anybody over 14 can drive the cars on their own. Under 14, they need to be passengers or heavily supervised by an adult. But the number of people we've put in our cars, just as experiencing, just uh, makes me really happy. And we just love getting people in, sit in there, have a photo, take them a spin. It's just getting them in people's cars. We, we have this thing called the first mile smile, where if you can drive one of our cars for a mile, come back without a smile on your face, you get a bottle of Bollinger champagne. Um, we've never had to give it away. Um, people just come back. It makes them happy. And that's a wonderful thing to do. Um, and I think we, as you say, building a kit, we, we're progressing as a business. So we, we're starting with our, what we call the icons. Our next, I think we've we've announced our Tamiya Wild One project, um, which is a slight step sideways for us. So rather than take big cars and make them a bit smaller, we're actually taking a radio control car from the 1980s and making it full size. Um, so yeah, that so that's that's going to be quite fun, and that's going to be something that you'll be able to build at home. Um, uh, yeah, it'll be a full kit, um, electric, and the cool thing is it's also going to be road legal. So you can basically build your electric kit car at home and no one's trying to do that for, we're probably slightly batshit for trying to do it, but it's it's going to be brilliant. And I've driven the first prototypes going to production later this year. It's brilliant to drive as well. It's so fun. It's so fast. Um, so, we're, so in terms of problem we're trying to solve, we're now moving to a space where we're going to go, well, we're going to be going towards EVs, certainly for urban driving, a longer distance, maybe something else is the solution. But I think the... Uh, we need to rather than sort of push back and go, oh, God, it's terrible. It's the end of the world. Let's think smart. Let's, how can we how can we solve the problem with EVs and look back at lightweight cars, for example? So our, our Tamiya is uh, it's about four, uh, it's under three, 400 kilos with a couple of batteries. And with a full battery back, it's only 450. Um, and that's it means we use less materials, less resources. And we're trying to make it fun enough to drive that you'll choose to jump in that to drive to the shop or to the pub than jump in your two and a half ton Mercedes. A two and a half ton SUV is a bad thing, whether it's powered by petrol, diesel, kittens, tears, or electricity, it doesn't matter. It's too much matched resources. And we want to bring the innocence and fun back into driving. So after the Tamiya, we've got some really cool stuff coming. Um, yeah. And it'll be relatively affordable as well, which will be quite cool. It's amazing because it's, I guess it's, if you, you look at Japan and what they're trying to do with K cars, it's mm. a similar concept, isn't it? I guess that you're taking what is a full size car and making it as not as small as possible, but as convenient as you can. So it's, I guess it's brilliant. I mean, are you guys selling these in Japan or is it just the UK market at the moment? No, we're worldwide. So worldwide. all yeah. our, our icons go everywhere. The first, I think the first three went to uh, Belgium, Australia, and Dubai. Um, the first three Bugattis out the door. Um, we're very much looking to go to uh, Japan because of the Tamiya's from Japan. That's, that's their biggest market. Um, and it's basically make a go-kart road legal in Japan, apparently. 
Um, but we're, we're, we're building it as road legal for the UK, EU, and for USA as well. Mm. And then I think a lot of other nations will compl- just automatically comply with those regs. But the thing with the Tamiya is we're going to do a version that's powered, depowered a little bit. Um, and it fits in some regs that you can actually drive on the road at 16 in the UK. Okay. 14 in France. That's better. Just <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I just thought the idea of like, when you're 16, if you want to be mobile, your only choice in the UK is like a moped. Yeah. Like, oh, or if your parents can uh, pony up for it, you get to drive a Tamiya to work to, to school when you're 16 years old. That would be very cool. I mean, yeah, that's, that's amazing. I, mean, I imagine that people pulling up to schools in cool cars anyway, let alone in, by yourself and just be like, well, I'm not even in sixth form yet and I can drive. So yeah. it's, uh, it's a brilliant idea. And I, feel, I mean, have you looked at, are you see doing kits and stuff? I guess, um, I, I just the top of my head. I mean, electric classic cars is is another one that I sort of, I think that you guys would have good synergy with. I mean, that seems like an amazing sort of crossover there. Yeah. So it's it's funny. I I, I spend New Year in Wales, and the company Electric Classic Cars, run by uh, I don't know if you know Moggy. Yeah, he's, um, he's been on the podcast. Yeah, great yeah, guy. Moggy's brilliant. So I popped in to see him, and he took me for a spin. Let me take his Beetle for a go. And I think Moggy's leading the field with that with that stuff. Um, I think it's a really lovely thing to do and the quality of what he does is brilliant. I don't think it's anywhere we want to go. I think we'll always build, we want to do runs of. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't mean we couldn't take, say, an electric class, a classic car from the 60s, redesign it. Because what we don't want to do is put in electric powertrains into pre-existing cars. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's what Moggy specialises in. It's, it's tricky. What we might do is reinterpret classic cars from the 60s at full size with less authenticity but putting in our motors um i'm saying that's theoretical obviously well yeah. no i can't i just can't say <laughs> what we're doing. sorry uh, this is where i this is where i gotta be careful about uh, saying way too much but yeah so that's where we're looking we could combine beautiful classic shapes that people recognize but with modern safety chassis and electric powertrain yeah and i've i've got a personal i've got a personal thing against uh, uh electric seats and electric wing mirrors. I mean, it's my it's my pet hate. Fair enough. The reason being that unless you have several people driving a car, you set your seat to where it is for you, and then you leave it there for the life of that car when you're driving it. And even if you had to change it, you just use the lever. But during that time, you're carrying around a couple of extra kilos of weight for the entire life of the car. Yeah, you know, sixty thousand miles, whatever. We, we don't need this stuff. We've become necessarily too, too used to convenience. Um, electric wing mirror is the same. You know, you said it once, job done. But you're carrying around that weight. So what we try and do is we try and simplify and take all the weight out. Um, and yes, it'll be uncomfortable. Wherever possible, we don't do doors. Um, okay. Anyone who works in automotive will tell you that doors are the hardest thing to do. Um, in fact, a little story on that one. When uh, Aston Martin scans their DB5 for the Bond movie, uh, yeah. the same scan that we used they got the most accurate db5 they could find of the period and they measured it and they found that the uh the door on one side was an inch longer than the door on the <laughs> other side so uh <laughs> so back then the cars made slightly differently and different cars different sides but but we yeah we we avoid doors because it's complicated so yeah middle of winter you might not want to drive one of our cars to the to the to the park a lot of countries and a lot of times of the year it is something you can drive and people yeah. jumping on tamia drive that rather than turn on to half ton suv brilliant we will be happy with that 
That's fantastic. And so, Ben, for the next the next five, 10 years, if I were to say everything went to plan, it, your dreams come true, anything you ask for is granted, like what would have to happen in those five, 10 years for that to be true? I think we, you'd have to be a lunatic to start a car company. I think you can look at the bones of car companies that have either started very quickly and failed very quickly. Yeah. With sort of promises of 2000 horsepower hypercars or car companies that just haven't survived. Um, it's a tough game to do. And the biggest thing I want is for the moment with, you know, with, with growing fast and with just about profitable as well, but it doesn't mean we, I don't have to keep raising money to sort of keep the growth sustained. Um, I think if I look back, I'd want to see that we're building sustainable and has made a bit of a difference to the environment. We've yep. made a, we've, we've shown that we've demonstrated that cars can be fun without needing a thousand horsepower. Um, I think that's, that's what I really like to achieve. What we do is in terms of what products we make, I want to be able to make the products that the big OEMs can't. So limited production runs of, you know, full-size cars, um, mm. can't give away an example without, <laughs> tell you give it away, to, but, yeah <laughs> yeah but it's we want to we want to we always want to work with the oems we don't want to i don't want to start headley cars my ego getting out of control what we want to do is, is we want to create cool interesting fun cars uh, that are evs that um the oems with under the oem brands that they couldn't necessarily do themselves because they're just they've got to be production line and and that just doesn't suit them yeah and your personal life i mean what would what would be there what you what your goals personally and sort of day to day uh oof, good question um i think enjoy what i do mm. so one of the one of the lessons i learned over the years i used to i ran a, I, I ran a business for a while um did a turnaround on it and it was really stressful and long but i every day i'll get up in the morning and go brilliant what am i going to do now and i jump out of bed literally jump out of bed and I'd been shown a job where that I really enjoyed. And once you've had that, you never want to go back to a position where you don't enjoy your job or you enjoy it less. And it's horrible. Mm. And I remember having that high. And then I did the next role I did. I was like, oh, this is a bit rubbish, isn't it? So I think the most important thing you do is, is enjoy your job. You have to do it eight hours a day, five days a week or more if you're an entrepreneur. Um, so you may as well make most of that. Um, because if you enjoy your job, it no longer becomes work and your life's generally better. And for me, that's what I, like. I want to keep enjoying what we do. I want to do cool stuff. I want to, you know, in, uh, look after my team and, you know, help them grow with the business. We've got people who have been with me since like, not quite day zero, but sort of day 20. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's just have fun, build cool stuff and enjoy our jobs. I think the happiness is happiness is a big thing. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm still personally figuring out what makes me happy, and like, I, you, I think you never truly get there, in my opinion. Like, you're never going to find everything that makes you happy. But I mean, what is what are the things that you enjoy in life? Just, just simply, obviously, cars is clearly one of them. But like, so, like for you, what is, what is happiness? I guess. Uh, obviously, usual stuff like you know, spending time with friends, doing all that kind of stuff. Um, I in my thirties, when I started my thirties, I think I was smoking 20 cigarettes a day mm. playing a bit of rugby but not particularly healthy and uh i managed to quit all that and started doing triathlons and then I, and then that developed into ironmans and the marathon sub and things like that so i try and keep fit and healthy because i i now get a stage where i can tell if i haven't done exercise for a few days i get a bit sort of um 
a bit sort of itchy mm. and uh yeah it's uh i think that's important i love racing cars so yeah. i race uh caterums that keeps me out of trouble um that's a lot of fun there's no electric caterum to race yet but um we've got our own ideas about how that might work um yeah i i think uh keeping fit keeping a nice balanced life and uh, spending time with a friend and family that's that's the key um, yeah no i think yeah, it's it's no, it keeps me out of trouble no, race, racing is a brilliant way because uh, you guys i think did i say something online that you guys were going racing the little car company is, is yeah is, so what, what, what where does what's the plan for that and how, how do you see that going yes yeah, so we sneak that out um we're looking we haven't oh, got to be careful we're, we're not announcing it until we think february um, but it's going to be, we're going to be doing something in the summer with cars, but on a family basis. So um, parents and children at the same time mm. um, work competing together. Um, how much more can I say? Uh, yeah, we, we, we always had an eye, eye on the vehicles that we would we wanted to create both these beautiful objects, but also purpose for them. So because they're not road legal at the moment, um, we, we need to find a purpose to people and to enjoy them. So that's our responsibility to lay that yeah. on. So, but the stuff we're doing in the summer in the UK, you won't need your own little car company car to drive, to compete, but we will just, um, yeah, we'll be, we'll be setting something up, which will be quite fun. Hopefully we'll be making an announcement in the next couple of months. Yeah. So I mean, I guess, I guess, I guess it's competition, is competition important for you then? I'm looking at this sort of obviously skiing and doing sports. So this has always been something that runs through your life as a, as a sort of a theme. Yeah, I guess for me personally, um, I'm bizarrely, I'm not the most competitive person, but I mm. just, I do enjoy it. I enjoy the sort of, yeah, the, the, the bonding you have also on, on, in competition. So it, I did the Caterham Academy, which I can't recommend highly enough a couple of years back, um, partly to learn about competition anyway, and motor racing, which I didn't know yeah. anything about till that point. And also to sort of become a better driver because I have to sign off all the vehicles and um, when they want something broken, they usually give it to me because I've got a heavy right foot. Um, but actually it was what I got out of it was the camaraderie and the people you meet and the, the characters and the kind of, yeah, the, there's so many different elements to it. Um, the, the, the fun was there, but it, it wasn't about getting a trophy or beating somebody. It was about having a really good ding dong with somebody in a race and it can mm. be at the front it can be at the back doesn't matter but just getting to the end of it you get out of the car you're hot sweaty you've got adrenaline pouring out of every pore and you go up and give that person a big hug and go and that was brilliant it doesn't matter if they beat you or you beat them and that's proper competition that's that's the fun of it um it's not yeah i, I was worried that it might be a bunch of people just like oh god you beat me in that race and you did them but it wasn't at all it's just yeah, you did really well there. And then, oh, yeah, you crashed into the back of me, you idiot, and et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, competition is important, but you've got to keep it, you've got to keep it within context. None of us are ever going to be racing Formula One. And you, the funny thing is everyone arrives going, I'm a really good driver. I'm a really good driver. I'm yeah. really good. You go to your first race and you're, you're just like, oh, maybe I'm not as good as I thought I was. Um, but it's good. It, te- it also forces you to improve and get better. Yeah. I've become a lot better driver after a couple of years racing. And so I mean, it's, it's, it's something that just, I guess it's just come to mind. So when you, when you look at sort of your, your companies and your teams that you build, how did you sort of, I guess, motivate them? And is, is, com- is competition something that you include in that? Or is it sort of just like, uh, how, how did you do it? I think it is competition within a business can be good. Mm. I mean, 
um, we have two engineering teams. We don't put them against each other, but we we like to sort of let them, you know, let them compete on delivery of the of the projects. Yeah. Um, but it can be negative. It, it can be, and you can if people losing is people are not comfortable with that. Um, I think I'm a bigger fan of collaboration than competition. Okay. And the, the wisest lesson I've got taught in business was always align incentives. So make sure if somebody, if you want something to happen, um, just make sure that the person who's doing it, their incentives are aligned with you, um, however you do that. So I think you're always competing against competitors within any industry. We're lucky in the little car company doesn't really have any. Yeah. Um, and, but in other industries that worked in, yeah, competition is forefront and there all the time. Little car company, we're just competing with ourselves and we compete and the, the, the push is to make the best possible product you you can. We we can't, we won't be shipping out to China and meat to spin off to the Maldives. It's all about um, how close can we get it to the original and how authentic can we be? Because the moment you drop your guard and, and do a yeah. standard product, somebody else will be there to eat your lunch. No, no, fair enough. And so when it comes to, I guess, the, the, the team members individually, what is like the relationships with them and how do you build that sort of up as, as a culture as well? It's, tr- it's, it's tricky. You, you need varied characters. You've got to watch out for having too much, uh, too many homogeneous characters because if if I just recruit people who thought like me, acted like me, you know, we'd just end up, you know, first of all, it would be really annoying, but we'd end up with a very narrow viewpoint and yeah. make pretty unsophisticated products. I think we, we've gone heavily into diversity and inclusion in the business. Um, and the point is to have lots of different viewpoints um, so that people come up with batshit ideas all the time and we can, we can, we can create that. And, and it creates more tension. Yeah. But I think a bit of control tension is a good thing. Um, it, it's really important. The automotive industry isn't particularly well known for having that diversity in yet. And I no, think yeah. both in lots of angles, you know, we there are not enough female engineers. Um, mm. And to solve that, we need to go back to school. And it won't solve it for us, but it's the right thing to do is to take some of our female engineers who are can go and speak in a school and inspire young girls to go right there is a role model there that i can see that i can want to be in in the future yeah it's possible whereas i don't think there's enough of that and it's it becomes self-sustaining as well because if there's no one for you to look up to why would you go into that industry whereas you go somewhere where there are people already doing it so to break that sort of uh break that structure you you, you need to, we need to get involved even if it's never really going to pay us back in any way but at least we know we're doing the right thing for the next generation no i think it's important like i say i think in this podcast is why i'm that's thing that i aim to do in the future is, is to go into these schools and is to have these got these conversations in a format where people i can just come up and have a chat afterwards and that you're opening up people's eyes and because for me school i was told that you've got university or you've got university there is that that's it there was the only apprenticeship that they the school knew of was a guy had gone out and found his own thing and then they just shoved that one on me. So it just it happened to be in cars. There was there was no like apprenticeships um mentioned in school. So yeah, I think it's it, it is it is a thing that I guess looking towards people in, in the automotive and motorsport industries that starting from like you say square one and education yeah. is is the best place to start. 
that's it. A degree isn't necessarily, I was very lucky. I went to good uni and um, got a good degree, but we, we've got a guy on the team who we're now putting through university because he missed out first time. And he, he works very closely, super smart, works with um, one of our other teams who did two degrees in engineering at Cambridge. Yeah. And those two guys work like hand in glove with each other. And um, they're very interesting. Andrew came to see us and he was, I think he was like 18 at the time. And he'd just been working on a, a for a company which didn't make an electronic device. And his job was to literally turn it on and off like that to test when it broke. And I just saw genius in him. And he left school at 16, went to work as a bit of a motor mechanic, did bits here and there. But he's got this incredible, he's what I call a creative engineer. He's got this incredible creativity and this inspiration. He, he bought his, he saved up. He saw, he was 12 years old and he saw an MGB. Mm. Um, and he said, oh, I've got to have one of those. He bought it by 16, saving up all his money and working day jobs. He couldn't drive it. He did, I don't think he passed his test he was 19. But he restored this himself yeah. by YouTube. He His mum got pissed off with him because he was rebuilding the engine in the kitchen. So he actually had to then carry the engine block up to his bedroom. Um, he taught himself. And he's since then, he's done all kinds of stuff. He's, he built a, um, a robotic arm. Uh, okay. Which is powered by brainwaves. Somehow borrowed some kit from somebody else who's working in the metal industry and managed to get it to close and open with brainwaves. He also does some really stupid stuff. Like um, he's bought four jet engines off eBay and strapped them to himself so he can go and try and learn to fly. But he is brilliant. Andrew, he is a genius. He, mm. But he needs, no, I don't think there was ever anybody to find the right path for him. University back then wasn't right for him at all. Yeah. But he's one of those people who found his own path. We, we've got him. Well, got him. I sound like we've <laughs> God, he's captive. Him. Yeah, he's in the basement, locked up, and he's only going to have to come out. Like, well, he's I tell you what, if he doesn't plugged into machine. Jet, yeah, if he doesn't get rid of those jet engines, he will be bloody locked up. But um, no, he's great, and we've we've tried to make a path for his skills rather than make him fit our mould. We're now going through university. Um, I want him to be working for us for the next 10, 20 years because he's just brilliant. He's creative. He's a great guy, and he's also um, a sort of undiscovered genius. And if he listens to this podcast. I'm going to deny all of it that I just said. <laughs> I can edit it out if you want. You never said it. Perfect, yeah. Just maybe do that. Be a blip. So, I mean, so that's, a good, that's a good point. So when it comes to, I guess, you and looking at maybe, I don't know, apprenticeship programs, is it something you want to do in the future? Is it something that you think would be beneficial for the little car company or is it something that... Yeah, we, we do it. We do it already. Um, we do try and bring people in who are kind of experienced, who are... Um, looking for that opportunity with the youngest we've done is about 14 every year we have trainee engineers um, who come in and in fact we one of the things they do is we had a guy come in a couple of years ago a fair skin guy is brilliant and he he was um we needed to put some miles on the um ferrari because we 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 test our cars roads road car standards so we put like the ferrari i think did five thousand miles of testing before we were prepared to release it and uh, the yeah the, the the we got this kid in and he said oh yeah so my job is I'm going to test drive the Ferrari for the summer we're like yeah 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 it's brilliant so right okay what's the downside no nothing nothing and he comes back he goes out for uh, his first run and the Ferrari does 110 kilometers <laughs> on a single charge 
and he comes back he's put no sun cream on his arms are red oh wow. and he's like can i have a rest now please i'm like no sorry bad news is you can swap batteries out and off you go again <laughs> but no it, it's funny i love the fact that we we offer something really unique for um new engineers and we can inspire them my engineering experience i worked in a company that did um design road signs which is if you want to knock the inspiration out of an engineer that's a really good way to do it yeah i ended up building a road at some point none of this stuff inspired me but hopefully i can or we can offer a bit more inspiration to the next generation no fantastic ben i know it's what we're coming towards the end here but there are sort of a few questions i'd like to ask i'm now calling them the fast five pending suing from Fast and Furious franchise, but there we go. Um, and the first one being, what is your ultimate three-car garage? Or ultimate three-little car garage, if you want to go that way. Oh, I think if I... Um, can I go non-EV? I'm with, you know, Do what you want. There, there are no rules. Benefits. There are no rules, yeah. Yeah, I think I've... My ultimate car would be a rough yellow bird. Um, yep. Always been, you know, my dream car. Um, I love 911s. I just... I love the ridiculousness of the yellow bird when it was doing 211 miles an hour when the Ferrari F40 and was struggling to get over 200. Yeah. Um, I think something modern, obviously, a, a supercar like a McLaren F1. I was lucky enough to drive a Chiron a couple of years nice. back. Nice, yeah. Um, and that was just a mind-blowing experience. Just uh, just something else. And though the engineering in those cars is phenomenal. Uh, I couldn't afford to fuel it or put the tyres on it, but oh what a car so mclaren f1 or a chiron and then you need a nice wagon so i'd probably go with um uh i like the, the new take and um uh the states yeah 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 um those look brilliant and the acceleration you can have electric cars is just insane um i don't think that we've necessarily seen a fun electric car yet but in terms of something to scare the labrador in the back that's the way to go so uh yeah, I'll take a, um, I'll take a, a, a classic. I'll take a, a Chiron as my hypercar and a, a Taycan Estate as a, as my daily driver. Uh, fantastic. And so, if you could pick, it doesn't have to be one of those three cars, but if you could pick any car to go on any track or road, but you can only drive it once, where would you go and what would you take? Ooh, I'd love to do Stelvio Pass again. Mm. I did it a few years ago in a. Um, 320 high bmw that a friend and i bought for 91 quid did a rally across europe in it um and it was an absolute hunk of junk um i'd love to do the stelvio pass in either my caterham or in something like a lotus elise something nice and light and and fast there is not or an alpine a110 but there's nothing electric yet which i think would be as fun uh, obviously i'd like to do it in one of our electric cars when they're road legal next year but uh, yeah we'll see oh, brilliant um the next one being if you could make or what's the most important modification you think personally you can make to a car taking out weight it's the colin without a, a, a moment's thought it's the colin chapman theory you know mm. add lightness um we've 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 almost been taught it ourselves because when we with the bugatti we we designed it to be authentic. So we were kind of, we didn't know how heavy it would be. And we got to, we put on the scales at the end and it was 250 kilos. We're like, hang on. Yeah. We just built a 250 kilo electric car. <laughs> and, um, 
And we suddenly realized that actually, if you take away the sort of a lot of the what I call the faff out of yeah. the cars, you can make something quite light. You know, the, the Bugatti is pretty small, but the, the Tamiya is um, 380 kilos with a couple of batteries. And it's the size of a full size car. So mm. I think taking the weight out, and it means you can have smaller brakes, which means you take more weight out and you can have a smaller powertrain, get more performance. And the tires don't wear out as quickly and all these kind of positive things. Um, and racing a Caterham, I, I did a, um, I've done a, I did a track, two track days in fairly short succession, one in a 630 horsepower Nissan GTR and one in a 120 horsepower Caterham. And I would go around that track forever in the Caterham. Yeah. Whereas the GTR was just, just wasn't as fun. No, I mean, it, is, it seems like you guys have got a very strong, I guess, Colin Chapman, or Colin Chapman, is it Colin Chapman? Did I get that right? Colin, yeah, Colin yeah, Chapman, yeah, 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 Lotus. Second guessing myself. Um, but that, that philosophy is, is something that I guess is when you're working with little cars, especially is the, the, the gram does matter when you're looking at creating a car that you're, that you're saying is little. If you, as long yeah. as the, the weight's little, again, everything makes sense. That's it. We, we, we haven't actually looked to take much weight out. We've just done a carbon addition of the baby where we're trying to knock out small weight just for fun and for better performance and everything else. Because we've got some got some things up our sleeve for the Bugatti baby this year. No, oh, that's I can't say any more. No, I, I won't ask. Um, the, the next question is, so the things that inspire you, so people or just things, objects, what inspires you as a person? I think people um is the main one i think there's there's people i look up to in the industry who have achieved you know pretty incredible things i think colin chapman is an easy one to, to mm. quote all day long um i think i got to meet i was so lucky i got to meet one of my heroes uh, uh, gordon murray last year he popped in to come and have a look around oh, wow. and i was i was just starstruck i mean i've met celebrities before but i kind of gordon murray comes in and i was just stuttering i was talking too quickly i was just I made I look like an absolute fool, but um, he was brilliant. I think there's a, a incredible engineer who we've sort of done a tiny bit of work with called Dave Tuick, who was responsible for the Alpine A110 and yeah. others. Um, he's been really inspirational, and he's kind of made me look at how we do things. Um, yeah, and I and I, you know, Musk, Elon Musk does wind people up, and he gets a lot of stuff wrong, I think, and God knows what he's doing with Twitter. But his bravery and what he's done with with Tesla and his absolute sticking to the guns and raising the money and all that kind of stuff, having done it on a much smaller scale, I don't think people appreciate how bloody hard it is. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think he's, although he's, yeah, he can go both ways with Musk. What he's achieved in terms of breaking the industry and and somehow taking on the big guys and getting through, you know, we're never going to try and take on te- um, take on them. Um, vw tesla but he's done something incredible and i think we'll look back in 20 years and go how the hell did he pull that off yeah but i mean i guess you guess you guys are you're you're not tackling the big guys but you're tackling the conventional car as an i don't know as a concept so i mean there's there's something to, to look at as you're not just you know i mean you might not be changing the industry but you're definitely taking taking a second look at big cars i guess I th- yeah i think that's fair and i th- and i think where i see it is we've gone down this path where cars have got heavier and bigger and you know and then people have got heavier and bigger as well but cars have cars have gone where a vw polo now is bigger than a vw golf 20 years ago mm. so i think what we what i think the question we should be asking is what is the purpose of the car usually it's to get from a to b do but 
the product has evolved in such a way that I'm not sure it's still fit for purpose. Mm. And then what we're doing is we're taking that say, well, we need to go electric. Okay, well, let's just keep the same object that's this two and a half ton or, or two ton SUV and just swap batteries out instead of the petrol engine. And again, that's doesn't feel like it's being innovative. I think we need to go back and look at the beginning and say, okay, you need to get it to A to B. What's the most efficient way of doing that? And it's not always a car is the answer. You know, it might yeah. be a bicycle, it might be a scooter, it could be anything. But I think we just need to step back a bit and go, we just got a bit focused on our current solutions to the problem. Um, so yeah, and hopefully we can sort of, um, we can potentially offer something which answers at least some of that question. That's fantastic. Uh, I mean, so the last question is, if you could give any advice to someone that wants to pursue their passion or wants to do something with the love for whatever they have, what would you, what advice would you give them? I think that the key is don't get distracted by the money. So uh, when I was at uni, I was headhunted by you know, consultancies and banks and all kinds of stuff and mm. offered really big salaries. And it'd be so easy to just take a massive salary at a bank, you know, and you get stuck with those golden handcuffs and the bonuses and all that kind of stuff. Um, I've always had a, a lonely journey because an entrepreneuring is quite lonely and not always successful. And sometimes just like, oof, I haven't really got any money left in my bank account. What am I going to do? Um, but actually my happiness compared to my peer group who did go into banking or something similar yeah. is off the charts. Um, so it's almost sometimes I've always followed the most interesting path at the time and it's led to me where I am now. I think there's an argument to say that you should ignore the salaries on jobs and always go for the job which you think you'll enjoy most. Yes, you might have to. Yes, you might have gone on holiday this year, or 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 yes, you might be eating baked bin beans rather than going out for a nice meal. But where it leads you in the end, it's it's personal growth. Where it leads you in the end, will be so much better because you'll get up in the morning and you'll enjoy what you do, and you'll be better at it because if, if you enjoy what you do, you are better at it by nature. Yeah. And suddenly a job's not a job. You kind of, I don't feel like I ever go to work. I kind of, I just have days when I'm in the office and days when I'm at home, not in the office. So that's me, the thing. It's it's not about following the money. It's about following something you will enjoy. Yeah, I think that's, that's brilliant. And um, Ben, thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for being on. It's been a pleasure. Great to meet you, Harry. All right. I love the passion Ben has, not only for his business, but for the industry's future. The little car company's take on the automobile is no small feat of engineering, that's for sure. From all-nighters to nail-biters, Ben has spent his time, blood, sweat and tears making sure that people have a smile at the end of it. And isn't doing something with your passion all about joy? I indeed leave these conversations with a smile on my face. And that's because this podcast is done out of passion. And I want that same passion for you. I want you to leave your next job hobby and all task with a smile and life is too short to do something you don't love money has us on this hedonic treadmill waiting for the next bill expense or tragedy and i for one have had enough it's time to start moving towards your dream whether that be a job a particular car or a place to live carry on taking risks and make sure that you're doing it with a smile on your face and so with that being said i'm harry and this is the ignition podcast Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode and along with all of you that share the podcast already, it's excellent to see that we're in the top 10% of most shared podcasts over 2022. And that blows my mind to know that you are helping however you can to spread the podcast. And if it just helps one person to figure out what they want to do with their passion for cars, it's so worth it. 
So if you wouldn't mind, share it with as many people as you possible and anyone that you know that loves cars. Hey, I wanted to ask a massive favour of you. 80% of you who listen to the podcast regularly don't follow it. If I could ask you just to hit follow wherever you listen, I would really appreciate it. It's an excellent way for us to get bigger and better guests and the ability to grow the community beyond anything we could imagine. It also helps the podcast grow more than you could ever know. So thank you. This podcast is lucky enough to be sponsored by iliketorace.com, a brand new social network all about motorsport. And unlike other certain social medias, it's not toxic and it is just full of people that love motorsport and competition. I mean, I'm competitive by nature to the point where I've got a bit too aggressive in certain ways. I mean, just to just to think of the place I can now go to discuss McLaren and to discuss the ongoing drivers and who's going next. I was gutted when Daniel left, but I can't wait to see how they progress and get other people's opinions on I Like to Race. I'll be getting there, getting involved. So if you're like me and you love competition and you love motorsport, I like to race.com. And if you want more information, look to the show notes below. Now, back to the episode. 